Are you looking for some practical tools for cultivating health in your local church? Check out the Nine Marks eJournal, our bi-monthly publication which features articles and book reviews on crucial topics. To subscribe to the Nine Marks eJournal, visit www.ninemarks.org forward slash eJournal. Hi, I'm Ryan Townsend, Executive Director of Nine Marks. Our vision is simple, churches that reflect the character of God. In light of that, Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches. To that end, we pray that this Nine Marks audio message will benefit both you and your local church. Listen, learn, and join the conversation. This is Mark Dever. It's February 2nd, 2012. We're in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at Westminster Theological Seminary, and my guest today is Greg Beal, or Gregory Beal, or Gregory K. Beal, or G.K. Beal. You have so many pseudonyms, Greg. Just call me Greg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and look at you being interviewed here at Westminster. I know. My, how the Dallas grads have fallen. <laughs> how, how did you... A well-meaning Dallas grad become an amillennialist. Well, you know, our president graduated from Dallas Seminary. And one of our systematicians, Dave Garner, graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary. So I don't know what's going on there. But what, what happened with you? How, how, did you? how did you take that tortured path? What, 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 was the, what was a crucial turn? About halfway through seminary, I became uh, a, a Reformed Calvinist in the doctrines of uh, theology, of God's sovereign grace that... Um, God elects and that we are uh, we're totally depraved and so he must uh, elect us unconditionally and uh, therefore Christ comes and takes a penalty of our sin that is the sin of his people and it's designed that way uh, as a particular atonement and and then the spirit comes and irresistibly uh, raises one spiritually from the dead and then one perseveres and uh, God preserves their faith so I believe that about halfway through the seminary and uh, uh, from there on, um, soon after that, after graduating, I became eschatologically uh, reformed. I, I was no longer a dispensational premillennialist, um, which um, some people may be familiar with those tags. Uh, I came to believe that the end-time uh, kingdom, um, uh, the millennium, uh, begins with Christ's resurrection and concludes right at the end of the church age. So are you a more optimistic amillennialist or a more pessimistic amillennialist? Um, in other words, the world's getting better and better all the time? You, you could call me an ironic post-millennialist in the sense that there's progress, but you don't see it with your eyes necessarily. So um, I don't like amillennial, though that really is what I would fall under historically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the alpha privative means no millennium, and that's absurd. I believe mm-hmm. in a literal millennium. I just don't believe that you can see it physically. Mm-hmm. So uh, I really like to call myself uh, an already and not yet millennialist. Mm-hmm. Well, whatever amount of time we're in right now, thank you for being here with us for this interview. <laughs> it is a joy and an honor to have you that you would give us time for this. Now, I, I had the joy of having you as a professor when I was in seminary. I remember your paper on Romans 9. You made an A. Amen. <laughs> and, uh, did uh, 
And actually, I think I was working on that when I talked to Ricky Watts about the doctrines of grace, because he was working on Romans 9. Anyway. Exciting. Ricky came from an AG background. But um, I remember then you were very committed to the New American Standard yeah. translation. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, do, do professors of New Testament use English translations of the New Testament? <laughs> um, yes, they do. And now that you've written the New Living Translation and the ESV, would you either particularly encourage or discourage pastors from using well, any I cert- particular translation? I, I, I certainly haven't written those. I thought uh, I read that in your the, bio. The, you read the, those two the, translations. <laughs> Is that the, not right? The, the, the Living Translation, I, I worked with a committee uh, on um, the Johannine literature, mainly okay. uh, Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the uh, with, with the ESV, um, I think I looked over some final page proofs of parts of it. I wasn't on the committee. Well, do you have any particular recommendations for pastors about translations? Mm-hmm. I think that a pastor should have uh, five or six translations. Certainly they should have the one you know that they work off of when they preach, that is in their pews, whatever they choose. Um, uh, here at the seminary, actually, most of the students and professors use the ESV. I still use New American Standard, but I like the ESV. What about the New English Translation, the NET? Um, Yes, that's. Uh, are, are you talking about the one that Dallas Seminaries yeah, produced yeah, online? That's yeah. the footnote Bible. Yeah. Dan, Dan Wallace's footnote Bible. Yeah. Um, it's good. It's good. Yeah, but and that really, I think, is one they should have because it really does explain a lot of the grammatical and especially mm-hmm. textual, mm-hmm. text critical yeah. choices. But um, I think you, would, I think what you need are two kinds of Bibles and two or three of each kind. One get a more straightforward. Uh, uh, less dynamic equivalent. Like the NAS. Uh, 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 New American Standard, an ESV, a King James or New King James Version, um, Holman. Uh, a New standard. HCSB. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would have those, and then I, I would have uh, a grouping of some of the dynamic equivalents, like, of course, the, the NIV, uh, the New English Bible. Uh, the New Jerusalem Bible, or no, mm-hmm. it's just yeah. the Jeru- Jerusalem Bible. Jerusalem, Jerusalem Bible, and uh, and and so you can kind of see what 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 those uh, uh, texts are doing. And and actually, one reason to have at least six or seven Bibles when you're preaching, uh, as you're preparing, uh, we know now that in many of our churches, people have different versions of the Bible, even if there's a pew Bible, and uh, it's good to be aware of those. And uh, and often, actually, this is the first line of commentary. Material mm-hmm. where the translations differ, differ is where often the problems are in the text and how the different translations solve those problems uh, really represent uh, uh, interpretations of the text. And of course, where translations differ, they may differ because there's not a problem, but someone's introduced their own problem as a translation. You have to be aware of that too. But I, I really think this is really important to, to have uh, uh, six or seven translations and, and have don't, don't have one big book with all the translations in it. Have a full Bible of each one because of the margins. You need the margins. Uh, 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 those margins will, will often give you clues to parallel passages and, and allusions. Mm. And the work done in those margins is massive. It's so important. And, of course, even if pastors don't remember their Greek very well, the margins in the Nesalalon 27th edition is absolutely crucial, mm. especially for allusions and important parallels. You don't even know how to read Greek. Uh, you don't have to know how to read Greek to use those yeah. margins. Yeah. Very important for preaching. Any thoughts on the changes in the NIV for the new 2011 as opposed to the old 84? In the NIV? Yeah. 
No, I haven't really, I haven't looked too much uh, at, at the new one lately. Let, let me just try something. I want to quickly ask you for one line comment <clears throat> on tons of books. I've got you with me. This is your job. Let's just say we're in a bookstore. I'm a young minister who hasn't read much, mm-hmm. and our wives are in the car waiting for us. All right? <laughs> so we've we got to do this quick. I just, I've never tried this before. Let me see if this works. All right? But I think you're the kind of guy it might work with. All right? So what, what you imagine, I'm, I'm looking at all these books, probably mainly in the biblical theology section. I'm about to pull down a book to buy it, but mm-hmm. I ask Uncle Greg for quick comment. <laughs> all right? Let me see what he tells me. Oh, look, here's Gerhardus Voss's Pauline Eschatology. Uh, definitely get it. It'll, uh, especially the first few chapters, have excellent material on how the latter days have begun and how they'll be completed. All right, what if I start to get, grab his biblical theology? Um, it's a good book, but it's a very, very dense read. And it's mainly an Old Testament biblical theology, not not a lot on New Testament biblical theology. But the, 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 the genius of it uh, is that he sees that Revelation develops as a seed. It develops organically. Uh, there, later Old Testament authors, New Testament writers are not reading something new in, into the old, but, but there's developing Revelation organically. Ed Clowney's preaching in biblical theology? Yeah, very good on relating what Voss does to uh, to preaching and especially uh, typology. Donald Guthrie's New Testament introduction, um, absolutely crucial together with Don Carson and Moose. But uh, so right these days, I mean that's like fifty, sixty years. So just push it back. Don't don't bother buying that one right now. Um, I would get Carson and Moose okay. first. Uh, George Eldon Ladd's Theology of the New Testament. Excellent, again, for developing uh, the, uh, the already and not yet. Um, as a New Testament theology, I don't think it's his best work. I think his work uh, earlier titled uh, The Presence of the Future is the work to get from Ladd. And we should get that. Yes. I'm a pastor. I should get yeah. that and read it. Yes. All right. Ritterboss Paul, an outline of his theology. Outst- outstanding, but a dense read. A dense read, but but good. Uh, Kaiser's Promised Plan of By God. By the way, the way to use some of these uh, works, like, like Ritterboss, is when you're preaching, look at the Scripture Index yeah. and, and, and see how, how that might comment on your passage. All, all of these books are crucial, but, but, but Ritterboss uh, especially. In Kaiser's Promised Plan of God? Um, he sees the main idea as promise and develops that, and it's a slice of biblical theology. Reverend Child's Introduction to the Old Testament of Scripture? Um, it's good in terms of presenting kind of the overall uh, canonical approach, though um, um, Childs is what we call a neo-orthodox, where he tries to see a unity in the final form of Scripture, but he, um, uh, if you begin to have, have him start exegeting in particular portions, you'll see that, that he holds to some higher critical views. Uh, Goldsworthy's Gospel and Kingdom? I haven't read it, I'm sorry to say, but I hear it's very good. It's really good. Donald Guthrie's New Testament Theology? Uh, good. Uh, it, it, it takes themes uh, and traces them through the, the different books a little bit, um, a little bit like Lad. So, as a New Testament theology in its time, it was good. But now you and I are in the bookstore. I probably don't need to get that. There's other stuff I can get that. Yeah. 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 I, th- I think so. Typos or tupos? Uh, I think is crucial. I think I think a pastor should uh, read that. It's, it's not deep exegesis. What he does is survey all uh, of the types that he sees in the New Testament. and uh, So it's not a hard read, really. Child's New Testament is canon? 
Uh, I have similar comments uh, on that as uh, his other work. Leon Morse's Old New Testament theology? Again, I, I think it's sort of in the category of, of Guthrie's in terms of not being as uh, updated. In terms of a classic, you know, more updated New Testament theology. I can push that back. I don't need to get that one. Okay. Yeah, I would say Thielman and Schreiner for a classic New Testament. Yeah. Theology. Now, I'm not talking about New Testament biblical theology. Oh, I understand. We'll but come to New that. New Testament theology. Eugene Merrill's Kingdom of Priests: History of Old Testament Israel. It's a it's a it's a good work. I haven't read it all the way through, but consulted. Ben Gemmerin's The Progress of Redemption. Mm. Um, again, coming 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 from a generally reformed framework. Uh, I think a, a, a good work on, on the relationship of how Revelation develops. Vern Poitras's The Shadow of Christ and the Law of Moses? I think it's a very good book. I, I, I think especially on the relation of Old Testament to the New. Are you listening to me, Vern? His office is right next door. <laughs> uh, um, I don't think he listens to these interviews. I think you're safe. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, 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 I recommend this. N.T. Wright's Climax of the Covenant? I actually think uh, that, that that's a harder read, a more dense read, but I think worth reading. Some people are afraid uh, sometimes to read about N.T. Wright because of his views on justification. Um, I actually think that's a book worth reading, as well as his uh, other books. His two, well, all, he has three real big ones. Yeah. Uh, uh, the New Testament People of God. Jesus and the victory of God. Jesus and the victory of God. And then the resurrection. I, I really think those are three important books that one should slowly but surely wade through. I read the resurrection book while I was brushing my teeth over a period of months. I mean, you can take these different times to do it, you know. I mean, because it's kind of hard just How to sit down. How on earth could you read a book that thick while you were brushing your teeth? I read a page uh, in the morning and a page at night. You're a disciplined man. John Salehammer's Introduction to the Old Testament, Old Testament Theology. Any comments? Yeah, I think it's worth buying, especially for the notion of uh, um, uh, what we call inner biblical exegesis, how he sees later parts of the Old Testament, especially developing earlier parts. Uh, he, I, I think it's a little idiosyncratic in, in some areas, but um, especially in relation to Hebrew and numerology and this sort of thing. But um, I, I don't think for myself uh, that he's right on Moses, that Moses, uh, he seems to picture him as an unbelieving figure. Hmm. So I think one needs to be aware of that. Hmm. Ray Orland's Hortum, God's Unfaithful Wife in Biblical Theology. A good broad stroke uh, uh, um, work on, on, on the notion of Israel being a whore as that relates to idolatry. Yeah, when I when I I haven't I've read that one. I haven't read your book on worship, but I've looked through it, and it reminds me of Ray's book. Ah, anyway. Yeah, my 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 book is, is actually called uh, "We Become uh, Like What We Worship," and uh, what I develop in that book. I, if I had to summarize the book, you become uh, what you revere, you resemble. Yeah. Either for ruin or restoration. Well, we'll come to your books in just a minute. I'm still here in the bookstore with you looking at others, okay. just seeing what I can find. Sidney Gridanus, Preaching Christ from the Old Testament? Every pastor should have that, as well as Christ in the Old Testament. Okay. What, what, what was that one now? Gridanus, Preaching Christ from the Old Testament? Yes, definitely, but they should have the earlier book as well, the um, the ancient text and the modern uh-huh. preacher. Right, yeah. Definite both books. The, the first one, I think, is, is just at least as important because it tells you, for example, how to find main points in, in historical narratives. G-R-E-I-D-A-N-U. U.S. Yeah. Greg says you should have his yes, two Both books. of them, yes. Very Sidney good. Gridonis. He comes out of the Dutch Reform background and I think <clears throat> really offers the best uh, biblical theology, redemptive history as it relates to preaching. Yeah. Well, see, now that one you're convincing me to buy. So I've got a few here you've convinced me to buy and the wives are honking. Um, Frank Thielman, The Law in the New Testament? 
Uh, I think it's a, a book worth getting, yes. Mm-hmm. That there was a plight, and Christ uh, has come to uh, solve that plight. There's some in biblical scholarship, unfortunately, who deny that there was a plight. Mm. Graham Goldsworthy, Preaching the Whole Bible as Christian Scripture? Yeah, I have that book. Um, I've, I've, I haven't read it all the way through, but I think it's good. I think it should be bought. Here's what I did with that one. I didn't read it brushing my teeth. I read it before Wednesday night Bible study. Oh, good. So we will always read a bit of a book. I read that entire book when it came out, out loud, to the congregation. Well, that was useful. Uh, Vaughn Roberts, God's Big Picture. Haven't read it. You would like that. You should oh, look good. at that. Vaughn is the preacher at St. Ebbs in uh-huh. Oxford. Okay. And he's a very good preacher, and it's a great sort of arcing biblical theology but in, in sermons, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a great way in your local church to introduce people to this. God's yeah. Big Picture, Vaughn Roberts. Now, Goldsworthy has a good little book. Gospel and Kingdom is uh, superb uh, at that. I thought it was According to Plan. According, according to, to plan. plan. That's another good that book for that. really... Yeah, that's a little longer, but that, that's a good book. Really? Ed Clowney, Preaching Christ in All of Scripture? I didn't find that one as helpful as his other book. And was this one compiled later? I think it was. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Charles Scobie, The Ways of Our God. and a I definitely think the pastor should get that and work through it, um, the way he divides. It's truly a biblical theology. It, he doesn't go book by book, but he picks uh, uh, various themes that are very essential themes to the whole of the biblical canon, and, and he works them through. He'll take one theme and then work it through the whole. And what is he confessionally? I think he's a Baptist, but I'm not sure. You, and might you don't remember where he teaches? I don't he's remember. in Canada. He's Canadian. Okay. But um, it's amazing he could do that in a thousand pages. Mm-hmm. Biblical theology of the whole Bible. It's amazing. Mm. He does a good job. S-C-O-B-I-E. Yes. Uh, I. Howard Marshall, New Testament Theology? Um, that's worth <clears throat> getting. Uh, he's very inductive, and, and you kind of have to wait till you get to the end of each uh, uh, biblical book to see what the upshot is, what the main summary is. So he's very British in that regard. And he he sees that the main thrust of New Testament uh, theology is that of mission going mm-hmm. out. Frank, I think there's great truth to that. Frank Thielman, Theology of the New Testament? Mm, yeah, uh, worth getting an updated New Testament uh, theology um, that, that will interact with the other th- uh, prior New Testament theologies. He's sober writer, um, uh, gets to the point, and I think it's worth having in the library. Mm. Graham Goldsworthy, Gospel-Centered Hermeneutics? Haven't read that one. Eugene Merrill, Everlasting Dominion, A Theology of the Old Testament? Uh, haven't read that one either. Alan Ross, Recalling the Hope of Glory? Um, good. Um, I, I'm, I'm more familiar with his earlier works uh, on Genesis and, mm-hmm. and Leviticus. And you would commend those? I think, I think yes, I would. I think anything that Ross does is good. Chris Wright, The Mission of God? Good. I, I, th- I think the, the, the themes that he works through biblically, theologically there are uh, well worth reading. Here's a question I would have about him. We're having our elders read that book right now, and as we're reading through it, he seems to uh, understand the church as simply all Christians everywhere. So there's not really an idea of the local church as having a distinct ministry centered around the proclamation of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Rather, it's everybody just doing good deeds from cancer research to yeah. to certainly teaching Sunday school. To mm-hmm. So I, I fear that the Great Commission gets subsumed in the great commandment to love your neighbors yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that would be a fear I have about Chris Wright's mission of God. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Well put. I encourage you to share that fear. Dennis Johnson's hymn we proclaim, Preaching Christ from All Scripture. Very, very good. 
Very good. <clears throat> Bruce Waltke's Old Testament theology? It's very big. Um, and I, I, I think the way to use his Old Testament uh, biblical theology, these bigger books, yeah. including Scobie, yeah. is to cherry pick. Uh, if you're preaching. I use the Scripture Index all the time. And I, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, I think the Scripture Index, and if you're, if you're on a, a major subject in the Old Testament, you might see if he has a major chapter or section on it, but especially look at the Scripture Index. It's very big. I think works like Scobie, works by Waltke, and some of the other bigger ones that approach eight. 100,000 pages, the best way to read them is to cherry-pick and especially to use the Scripture Index. Mm. Tom Schreiner's New Testament Theology? Yeah, I think that's uh, a very a very good one. He has more uh, of what I would call already and not yet eschatology in it, which I think is a, a further uh, advancement on some of the others, definitely. Mm-hmm. Walt Kaiser's Recovering the Unity of the Bible? I haven't read it. Uh, Andreas Kostenberger and a couple of others, his New Testament introduction, The Cradle, The Cross, and The Crown. Again, that's a long book, but I think it's very good. Uh, I've, I've commended that. I, I wrote an endorsement for that book, and I think that uh, uh, it, you have to slog through it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, I think it's, it's, it's good, and it's basic, and he's not going to lead anyone astray. Mm-hmm. Salehammer's The Meaning of the Pentateuch? Uh, similar comment to what I said earlier. Anything by Salehammer is going to be good from the vantage point of intertextuality. That is, uh, um, interbiblical exegesis. How later parts of the Old Testament are using the earlier parts. He's, he's uh, uh, that's that's his forte. Yeah, the wives are about to go crazy. So the last one I'll ask you about: Jim Hamilton's new in God's glory and salvation through judgment. I think it is um, a a good uh, brushstroke work. Again, it's a Theology, biblical theology, the whole Bible. It's all these brushstrokes. I mean, are we getting a complete picture happening here? Is there a flowering of biblical theology going on right now? I think there is. Yeah, I, I definitely think there is. Um, more and more, uh, I think evangelicals especially are uh, attempting to uh, trace the redemptive historical storyline of the Bible and to. Um, uh, really uh, fill out some of the nooks and crannies that haven't been filled out uh, previously. Yeah, I mean, you've written so many articles, chapters, even books on this. Why, why did you become so interested in apocalyptic literature? Well, for a very simple reason. Uh, when I went to do my doctoral work at the University of Cambridge, I was very interested in doing something on the use of the Old Testament and the New. And my professor at the time at seminary, a fellow by the name of S. Lewis Johnson, uh, uh, had taught that course, and I had taken it, and he, he, he knew a lot about the literature. And I said, okay, where, what, what area should I do my dissertation in? What, what needs to be written on? And he said, the use of the Old Testament and Revelation. And I thought, oh, I had no desire to work in the book of Revelation. I mean, I, I'd get the trumpets and the bowls and... Uh, the seals confused as to where they occurred, even in seminary. I mean, I just hadn't studied it much. It was all complicated <laughs> to me. And so... <laughs> S. Lewis Johnson that yeah. set you on this path. On that oh, path. And, and so it's really the use of the old and the new. Yeah. I mean, apocalyptic is is sort of a, a fancy word, in my opinion. Uh, well, is that because of Daniel and Revelation? Uh, yeah. You know, it's really, I think, the way to understand apocalyptic, both in Judaism... And in the book of Revelation is to see how uh, is the Old Testament being used. That's crucial. Whatever happened to your Colossians commentary? Uh, it is. I, I've just finished uh, verses 1 through 2, chapter 1. 
Right. And however, uh, however, I, <laughs> I think you started on this in the 80s, if I'm remembering in some way. Well, I just never started. Okay, all right. But, uh, actually, uh, misremembering, and were you going to do something on Colossians? Uh, I think that that was set up maybe in the 90s. I can't okay. remember when in the 90s, uh, maybe mid-90s. But uh, uh, what I did do in the commentary uh, on the New Testament, you use the, the Old Testament, Colossians. I did yeah. Colossians, and yeah. so I've, I've gone a long way yeah. pretty much toward uh, – uh, deciding what's the Old Testament influence in Colossians. Well, Greg, I've started in the library, which some of the guys listening to this interview will appreciate, but I, I would like just a little biography now, since this is the first time we've had the privilege of interviewing you. Um, you enjoy Baroque music? I do, definitely. I just came across a new one. Um, I, I think it's, uh, what is his name? Oh, Lali, I think, is a French Baroque mm. uh, composer. Good one. You like antiques? Love antiques. In fact, we found an 1840 uh, house to live in here. Really? You talk about antique. Oh, my gosh. You can't step too hard on the floors in the living room. You'll go through to the basement. So is, is Philadelphia as good an area for New England as finding antiques? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially because of Lancaster County. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And you enjoy gardening? Uh, I aspire to be a gardener. So you don't really do any? Uh, not. I used to in Wheaton a little bit. Okay. <laughs> now, you were born in 1949. Yeah. Where? Dallas, Texas. And your family did what? My father was a commercial artist, and my mom was a homemaker, though... Well, when you say commercial artist, you mean you have cool posters from the 1950s and 60s, like, sitting around your house? No, no. He, he did art for uh, advertisements for oil companies uh-huh. and things like that. But there must have been posters and things. Yeah. yeah. He, 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 but he's I watch Antiques Roadshow. I know this stuff. <laughs> they sell these for lots of money these days. <laughs> I guess not his. No. No. Did you grow up in a Christian home? No, no. My father was an agnostic. In Dallas in the 1940s and 50s? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I thought everybody was Baptist or Methodist down there. Well, I grew up uh, in a Methodist church, okay. but I was not a believer. Um, was your mother a believer? Um, you know, I'm not sure. I think she was sort of a, you know, a, uh, kept her faith to herself so a bit. Did, and so it's come out a little bit more. She's, she's, she's now 98. Okay. So. so how did you become a Christian? Well, um, in six, my brother became a Christian. He's seven years older than me. He became a Christian in high school. What, what does he do? Uh, he's a financial advisor now, but he's getting ready in his retirement to go with a fellowship of Christian athletes, it looks like. So wow. he's always worked with them one, in one way or another. But um, So he would witness to me, and one time he got someone from Campus Crusade to witness to me, and you know, I, I just wasn't interested. And uh, But I do remember the guy from Campus Crusade mentioned something about Romans 6. And, uh, and then I went on uh, to college. I only went to college to participate in athletics. You went to SMU? Well, that's where I ended up. I started out at Virginia Military Institute on a, on a football scholarship. Uh-huh. They were the only one that offered me one, so that's that's where I went. And uh, but I had mononucleosis away from my girlfriend. My grades were bad, so I thought, well, I'll pull out that Fellowship of Christian Athletes Bible that I had attending a conference in high school, and 
Uh, I tried to model myself after the, those athletes, you know, but not their faith. But at any rate, I said, I'll pull the Bible out and see if I can get encouraged. And I start went to Romans. And as I started reading through Romans, uh, I remember not understanding a lot. Somehow I got through chapter 9 without blinking. But uh, in chapter 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Mm-hmm. And I said, whoa, that hit me between the eyes. I don't think I've heard it that directly. Of course I had. But um, I said, well, you know, I feel like I've been on the fence, never affirmed it, never denied it. So I, so I said, I believe it. And from that point on, I think I can say. This is freshman year in college? Mm-hmm. It's first semester. Mm-hmm. From that point on, I uh, had a desire to read the Bible, to, um, to pray. And I remember witnessing to an atheist, one of my fellow students at VMI. Mm-hmm. Nobody told me to witness, you know. And so, um, you know, obviously on, on, on the chart, you know, if you picture the Dow Jones, I mean, obviously there are dips in one's spiritual life and desires. And, but, but I think I can say, as one of the Puritans says, what I once was, I now am not. And what I now am, I will not be in the sense of prayerfully further sanctification. Yeah. Amen. And then you transferred from... I finished most of my college at SMU, where I was so excited to take courses for credit in religion. And immediately I got into an Old Testament introduction class, and the very popular professors, by the way, winsome, charismatic, not not in the evangelical sense. Uh, And I still remember how, you know, Noah's flood was a myth. I still remember raising my hand and saying, well, wait a minute. If Noah's flood was a myth, why is it that so many civilizations, not just in one country, but around the world, have a flood myth. I mean, what's going on here? And so I remember already trying to defend the mm-hmm. faith at mm-hmm. that point. So. And you, you majored in what? I majored in uh, Latin American history and philosophy. And you stayed and did a master's. I did in historical theology, major mainly focusing on Augustine, Reformation, and Counter-Reformation. So wh- where were you going to church? I was going to a Calvinistic Baptistic church where S. Lewis Johnson was the pastor called Believer's Chapel. Oh, okay. Which is in uh, North Dallas. Yeah. And you graduated I in... I was a Baptist at one time. Amen. Well, Greg, I still think you may be in your heart. And you, you, uh, you graduated when? You graduated when? There's no doubt I'm a Baptist in my heart. Amen. You graduated when? <laughs> Depends on what kind of Baptist I so when you graduated yes. Yes. in 76? Yeah. Uh, that was from Dallas Seminary, 71 from SMU. 71. And then there were, there were people. I was uh, involved in Campus Crusade at right. uh, SMU, and there were... And how'd you met Dorinda? Uh, I met her at Believer's Chapel right after, right toward the end of, of seminary. Okay. And then went off to Cambridge for a year, and we wrote and came back that following did, did summer. Did Dorinda come from a Christian family? She did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, she attended Highland Park Presbyterian Church, and... North Dallas, where Clayton Bell used to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then you say you went to Cambridge, where you did your doctorate, and you told us about how you... Why Cambridge? Um, well, uh, Cambridge... Football was, scholarship? No, no not a... I, I thought about playing rugby, quite frankly, uh-huh. but the amount of time it took was just too much. Um, no, there was... Uh, uh, one of the things very attractive was the Tyndale House for Biblical Studies, mm-hmm. and that's an evangelical place, and I thought, you know... Um, at least I think I thought this, uh, uh, that it would be a good place to do my studies. Um, the English also, I mean, I could have, I was, I was accepted to Edinburgh as well. Um, but the English tended to be a little bit more, they stayed with the text a little bit more, whether or not they believed it. Whereas in the United States at that time, it, it, was, it was not quite that way. Mm. So you, you, you were pleased with your choice? 
Yes. It was a good place to do your work. Yeah, and I found a church there. It was Eden Baptist Church where uh, I attended. Yeah. And then uh, you uh, did your doctorate on what? did my doctorate on um, uh, the use of Daniel in Jewish apocalyptic writings and in the revelation of John. Okay. Comparing how... Okay. The Jews, uh, approximately in the first century, understood Daniel and how Revelation understands and Daniel. You mentioned Tyndale House as a sort of place where you worked when you were in Cambridge. Why don't you just explain to the folks listening what Tyndale House is? Yeah. Tyndale House uh, was established around 1946, uh, right after the, the Second World War. And it is a place for evangelicals to go and study. Uh, whether they're doing a degree or not doing a degree, uh, uh, a place where they can have fellowship and have mutual encouragement in their faith and, and yet uh, try to strive for the highest standards of biblical scholarship. The library, of course, at that time was exceedingly small. Now it's, it's very big, as you know, and uh, it really probably has the best skeletal library for biblical Old and New Testament studies anywhere. And if they're missing a book, you can go five minutes away to the university library and they'll have it. So together with the university library, it's, it's unbeatable for research. Yeah, I, it, I would encourage people to even consider financially supporting Tyndale House. The Lord has used that in the last 60 years to be the sort of nursery for so much good work that pastors feed on all the time in the English-speaking world. So Tyndale House in Cambridge, do some work and look into that. I agree. And uh, Peter Williams, the relatively new warden, is a, is a very, very good man, very uh, conservative man uh, theologically and yeah. and also reformed. Yeah. And a member of Eden Baptist Church, where you were, when you were there. I think he's, at least he's been an elder. I don't know if he still is. Um, you went straight from Cambridge into Grove City College here in Pennsylvania? That's right. To become guest assistant professor in the Department of right. Philosophy and Religion? That's right. From 1980 right. to 82, and then in 83 you stopped being a guest, and you yeah. became actually yeah. assistant professor in the I Department of Philosophy. they put on there because they could fire religion. you more easily if it uh-huh. didn't work out. But then you just stayed there, what, through 84? You didn't stay long. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Then you moved to Topsfield, Massachusetts. That's right, where you I lived. Helped, I helped you move your refrigerator in. <laughs> yes, to the, to the home that Phil and Carlene Weaver still live in. They bought it from you, and they still live there. Anyway, that's amazing. They were in your ministry. They were. Yeah. Um, so you moved to to become professor of New Testament at Gordon Conwell. Uh, assistant professor. Assistant professor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in '84, and mm-hmm. you moved up to associate professor, and you began working on your Revelation commentary, and right. got involved. And I probably was starting to help the THM in biblical theology get started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And Scott Hayfman and I uh, helped do that together with the department. You were there for a lot. You were there what? Eight, Sixteen years. Sixteen years. Eighty-four to two thousand. I was there longer than I've been anywhere else. I was, yeah. of course, at Wheaton College Graduate School for ten years. Yeah. Uh, this is only my second at Westminster. Yeah. While you were there, you were ordained in the Conservative Congregational right. Christian Conference in ninety-two. That's right. Yeah. Why were you ordained? Yeah. Um, I, I felt that uh, I needed a link, a, a formal link with uh, the church and um, so uh, and, and the seminary. It was really a call to the seminary. Uh, I wasn't being ordained as an elder. But you I, were at Lanesville Congregational Church, weren't you? At that time, I, I, I was at a church um, where Bill Boylan was the pastor. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, Byfield Parish. In Byfield, and then we spent we, we spent most of our years at uh, the Lanesville okay. Church. So, and I, I did some interim ministries at the Lanesville Church. Uh, I'm actually in the process now that I'm at Westminster of transferring my credentials to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And are they happy to take conservative congregational credentials? Um, 
<clears throat> after very careful theological examination. So, somehow I think you'll probably be up to the exams. Well, we'll I have it this Saturday, actually. So. Really? Well, thank you for taking this time away from studying to be with us. Uh, okay, a simple question. Did Jesus and the apostles refer to Old Testament passages in a way that was consistent with the original intention of the Old Testament passage? What do you think? I think he did. I think they did. I think you're a good man. I think you taught me that at Gordon Conwell. <laughs> I mean, uh, you you edited and published this book right here back in wrong the 80s. Time. I did. I, I'm just <laughs> right doctrine from the wrong text. Yeah. Ta da! Yeah. I have a story about that. Yeah. Look, look look on the spine. If you look on the spine, the right doctrine from the wrong text. No question mark. Oh uh, yeah. That makes it seem the opposite of what you're saying. <laughs> wow, well, Walter terrible. Kaiser pointed that out to me. Um, uh, lots of interesting chapters in that book. I would commend the book to folks. Uh, some are more solely academic, like Barnabas Lenders. But yeah, I do have uh, uh, articles by um, uh, non-evangelicals. C.H. Don. That's right. Um, ironically, C.H. Dodd is uh, kind of, um, I, th I think he's right on um, on, this point. On, on, on this particular point. So and, and now in, in the field, of, in this field, you've got evangelicals uh, uh, agreeing with non-evangelicals that the New Testament does not develop the Old Testament consistently mm -hmm. with its meaning. And then you have some evangelicals agreeing with non-evangelicals who do yeah. think they're developing. So yeah. it's 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 a very, very mixed bag now. And I would say many of these chapters are of general use for the pastor. So I would encourage folks, if they don't have a copy of the right doctrine from the wrong text, to get it. Particularly that last one, which was your Thamelios mm -hmm. article that kicked this off. That was, my first, that was my first programmatic article It on was a subject. useful, useful oh. article. I still use that article well, thank you. when they have that question. Thank you. I think it was very well done. Just arguing that... The Old Testament quotations are not ripped out of context, but they're actually very sensitive readings of the Old Testament. Why no chapter from Meredith Klein? Um, well, I have it from his disciple, Gordon Hugenberger. Uh, that's true. But um, I, I, can't, I think at that point, Klein might have mainly been spending his time out at Westminster West. Okay, then finally, after four years with the publisher, your massive commentary on Revelation yeah, appeared right. in 1999. Your 1,200-page commentary yeah. on Revelation. Mm -hmm. well, what took it so long to come out? Um, well, <laughs> first of all, it was very technical. Uh, second... So it's not a brushstroke commentary? <laughs> I'll let others make that decision. But uh, secondly... Um, there are all kinds of guys who may hear this who didn't know their books were brushstroke. Brushstroke is not a negative thing. All right. Brushstroke is like apples and oranges with something that's... So is thorough. Grant Osborne's commentary on Revelation a brushstroke commentary? No, I don't think so. Would it be similar to yours? I think in similar depth. Uh-huh. Yeah, I Were you pleased with how it came out? I was pleased. And you were going to say why it took so long? Yeah, the other reason it took so long, besides its perhaps technicality, is there was quite a queue. I'll leave it at that. All right. Fair enough. In 99, you moved to, uh, to Wheaton. That's right. To become the mm -hmm. Westerner Chair of Biblical Studies, to take the chair of Professor mm -hmm. of New Testament. You did that for 10 years, from mm -hmm. 99 to 2010. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, you also became coordinator of the MA in Biblical Exegesis. Yeah, yeah there. that was a fun program. Yeah. Um, 
And you also contributed articles to the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology. Yes, that's true. Many articles? Do you remember which oh, articles? No, just one. Just one on the Biblical Theology of Revelation. Okay. Just one. Uh, do you it's like book, though? I think the that's New Dictionary of Biblical book. Theology would be yes. another good resource for pastors. To I mean, if you want to see what are the categories of biblical theology in distinction to systematic theology, you know, you can check the first part of that book, and, and they'll they'll have the various important biblical theological topics. And why don't you just distinguish before us biblical theology from systematic theology? When you're saying biblical theology, you don't merely mean theology that is biblical and true, right? As good systematic theology will be. That's right. You mean something. More than that. That's right. In fact, I uh, I like what Carson says. I, I brought this because I figured you might ask it. Here's what Carson says. By systematic theology, he says, I refer to the branch of theology that seeks to elaborate the whole and the parts of Scripture, demonstrating their logical rather than merely historical connections and taking full cognizance of the history of doctrine and the contemporary intellectual climate and categories and queries while finding its sole ultimate authority in the scriptures themselves, rightly interpreted. Systematic theology deals with the Bible as a finished project. Now, that's probably one of the longest sentences you'll ever see Don Carson write. His definition of worship is, is like twice as <laughs> Don, Don feels called to complexify. <laughs> now, here's how, what he says about biblical theology. I read it because I agree with it. By biblical theology, he says, I refer to that branch of theology whose concern it is to study each corpus of the Scripture in its own right, especially with respect to its place in the history of God's unfolding revelation. This emphasis is on history and on the individual corpus. Now, I would want to tweak that with Gerhardus Voss's uh, statement about biblical theology in his lecture, the idea of biblical theology as a science and a theological discipline. That uh, was, I think, his um, lecture he gave, uh, inaugural lecture at Princeton. He says this, biblical theology, rightly defined, this is Voss, is nothing else than the exhibition of, of the organic progress of supernatural revelation and its historic continuity and multiformity. In other words, his, he gives the uh, image, the metaphor of a seed, and as revelation develops, that seed is growing. Uh, so it, it grows already uh, uh, in, in, in the Old Testament. Um, let's say it's an apple seed in the New Testament. Uh, uh, you get an apple tree at the consummation, apple tree with blossoms, consummation apple tree with the apples. Uh, now, what does that mean practically in terms of how to do biblical theology? I think what it means is that a biblical theological approach to a particular text will be very aware of the preceding history of Revelation up to that point uh, of the biblical book, say, in the Old Testament, and uh, be very aware of uh, what's going on in that book that you're studying surrounding your focus passage, and then very aware of the remainder of uh, biblical revelation in the old and, and then in the new. I, I think it's important to have some comment of, about this in, in any sermon we preach. Well, it, can be, it can be brief, but some comment. Well, particularly when you're preaching from the Old Testament, you just won't preach it correctly often if you don't have some sense of that progress. If you don't have some idea of where this fits, yeah. because what part of how it works depends on where it is in the story. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that, so that's the main difference between systematic and biblical. If we had to really reduce it now, no. biblical theology is tracing the history of Revelation. Systematic theology is looking at categories of theology and just running them through yeah. with, without concern so much for its uh, time in history. 
running through without concern for time and history doesn't sound quite as legitimate in your mind as biblical theology. No, I think it is. It's okay. just a difference. Apples and oranges. Okay. No, I think and it both is. are good. Yeah. Today, you know, it, uh, systematic theology in some evangelical sectors—I won't say which—but in some significant evangelical institutional places uh, is now a relic of church history. Hmm. So, for example, uh, um, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology is seen as an attempt to pass something off that really is modern, that really belongs to the dusty shelves of the past. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Burkhoff, these, are, these things are worth studying. And this is worth studying for uh, historical theology, but not for really, yeah. you know, mainly how we understand the Bible. Now, the, the, the new calling word is constructive theology. Uh, whatever that means, and that, that's the problem with it. No, I, I, I very much think systematic theology is a, a very valid. And again, I, I must say, I, I think you ought to have Turretin, you ought to have Bavink, you ought to have Burkhoff, Dabney. Those are the ones that come to my mind. Of course, Calvin's Institutes. But with those others, the way to use them is encyclopedically. Now, here at Westminster, we actually read through a lot of them, uh, but uh, major segments. But use, again, uh, the Scripture indices, Mm. very crucial in the topical indices, um, uh, especially if you're preaching on some aspect of Christology or or, or whatever. Very important. I I found this so helpful. Um, Were the years at Wheaton good years as a teacher? Fruitful years? Yes, they were. It was a lot of fun. Uh, they wanted uh, me and others to help uh, rebuild their graduate program because uh, their professors in biblical studies uh, uh, and theology were retiring. And so they brought people in like me and Doug Moo and, um, and, and others as well. And what we did is we, they wanted us to create a new MA, so we created an MA in biblical exegesis, uh, Greek and Hebrew. And uh, uh, they wanted a, a doctoral program um, in, in biblical studies and theology. Was John McKay still there when you were there? Just barely. He was. He was on the. He was one of the ones retiring. Oh. Um, and were you guys at College Church mm-hmm. while you were? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good years there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, we were there mainly when Kent Hughes was there, and then just overlapped a little bit with Josh Moody. Those seem to be very good years for you as an author. I mean, your mm-hmm. first and second. Yeah. Thessalonians commentary came out. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Uh, that one is not an exhaustive commentary. Um, you could call that a, th- a, 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 a thumbnail sketch. Um, brushstrokes. A, a brushstrokes. But so who is the man of sin? The man of sin? Um, well, uh, uh, David Gordon identified me. But um, <laughs> former colleague at Gordon Conwell, um, the man of sin is the final Antichrist uh, who is to come, which I believe there will be a literal historical Antichrist. Though, as we know from Second uh, Thessalonians two and First John uh, two eighteen and following, we know the spirit of Antichrist is already here. Uh, so will we recognize this man of sin as the man of sin. Um, I, I think we will, but I think things will happen so quickly. Uh, We'll be wondering while it's going on, is this really it? Because sort of like John the Baptist did about Jesus? Yeah, I think that may be a good illustration. Uh, we, we know from 1 John 2.18, which says, my little children, it's the last hour, and you've heard that Antichrist is coming. I'll tell you, many Antichrists have already come for this. We know it's the last hour. Uh, we know that there are Antichrist figures throughout. And and it makes sense that people have thought the end was going to come throughout history because some of these figures, their, their Antichrist features almost reach a zenith. 
And people say, this is it, but it didn't hit that final zenith. And so that's the way it's going to be at the end, and it'll just go a little bit further, and uh, then we'll know. In 2004, you also published... IBP published. You bring all these books up. Your 400-page biblical theology of the yeah. dwelling place of God called most The Temple fun, and the Church's Mission. Most fun book I ever wrote. Really? Oh, Why? Oh Why? Oh, my gosh. Just uh, opened my eyes. I, I don't know if anybody else's eyes have been opened, but uh, just seeing how Genesis uh, 1 through 3 presented a, a temple garden mm-hmm. and how the whole rest of, 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 of biblical theology was uh, a development. Now, this sounds like what Meredith Klein place. taught me in the two classes I took with him. Yeah, you know, I have a footnote in there saying that I wonder if I got this idea from Klein. I don't remember getting it mm-hmm. from him, but mm-hmm. but in 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 well, writing, you could both just get it from scripture. In, in writing the book, yeah. I was reading back through Klein, so I actually footnote it. Oh. The, the thing with Klein is very interesting. He again is a hermeneutical brushstroker. He does not feel the need to inductively mm-hmm. support his points. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an artist, mm-hmm. and, and so it goes with brushstrokes. And uh, the interesting thing about it is that a lot of people just don't buy into his ideas because of that. But in this case, I wrote a 400-page book that shows his one-sentence liners at various points were true. So how would this thick book be useful for a pastor? Uh, by reading uh, the edition coming out that will be 200 pages with uh, InterVarsity Press. What are you getting rid? I mean, why are you getting rid of stuff? I'm not. Well, I, well, you can still buy that one. Oh, okay. All right. So you do another. Not, no, okay. No, no. It's just another. It'll, it'll, so would this be useful for a pastor to get? I think so. What would be the utility of it? Utility of it would be to trace uh, uh, how how God's dwelling uh, has expressed itself through the ages. And especially now, how the believer in the church and, and the church corporately is related to those Old Testament prophecies about an eschatological temple, which I think is has begun now and will be consummated later. What does it mean that we're actually an end-time temple now? It's not that we're like. I call that the analogical hermeneutic, which intriguingly is used by literal dispensationalists. They say, oh, Second Corinthians 6 says uh, we're a temple and we fulfill temple prophecies. No, we're like a temple. The text says we fulfilled those prophecies. We're beginning to fulfill them in an inaugurated way. I don't take it analogically. It's literal. So you're not a replacement theologian. You're a fulfillment theologian. Of continuity. Yeah. Who is the true... Ten- the- Jesus is the continuation of true Israel, and all those who identify with him. And Jesus is the continuation of the true temple, and all those who identify with him. He began to establish the end-time temple in his ministry. Then he died, but you can't keep a good temple man down. He raised it up again in an escalated way. And all we who identify with him are uh, identified with that end-time temple. It's an end-time temple. Page 402, the main point of this book is that our task as the covenant community, the church is to be God's temple so filled with his glorious presence that we expand and fill the earth with that presence until God finally accomplishes the goal completely at the end of time. The idea is that you and I, have you ever thought, I'd never thought about this until I began really reflecting in this book, but, you know, Adam's created in the image of God, Adam and Eve in, in Genesis 1. Now, if Genesis 2 places Adam and Eve in a temple, well, that, that's where you put images. And why are images there? To represent and reflect the God of the temple. And now, I mean, our call, uh, if if, if I'm in the right direction in that last statement, is uh, to be in God's end-time temple, which is invisible, though literal, 
and we are to reflect his attributes as we uh, come closer and closer into relationship with him and uh, reflect his glory. Uh, that's uh, when it says they're image bearers in chapter one. What does that mean? Well, uh, they're, they're, they're reflectors of his image. Just as in chapter five, it says Adam bore children. Uh, in his image, just as he was made in the image of God. Well, uh, that's sonship language. Sons are like their fathers. Children are like their parents. And so we are to reflect God. And uh, this is eminently practical as we're in uh, the temple, as God's image is now, whether we're in the grocery store waiting in the line and maybe an elderly lady is fumbling through the purse and uh, the Super Bowl starting in five minutes and you've got your chips and your salsa, but she's taking five minutes. Uh, what kind of attributes are you going to express at that point? standing in line. Um, is it the attributes of our Father, who is eminently patient, or the attributes of some uh, fan whose whole life is football, perhaps? I don't know. So, uh, yes, is it pastoral? Yes. In 2004, you also published a chapter in this book, Hell Under Fire. Right. You contributed a chapter on the Revelation uh, on hell. Um, Zondervan published. Explain your interest in this project. Well, I was contacted to write an article on... Uh, you certainly don't take every article you're asked to write. No. So why that? Um, it was to develop and pull together things from my commentary on Revelation that hit just that point. And I thought that there were books and articles circulating that denied the eternity of hell um, and, and a conscious separation of the unbeliever from God and the... Uh, concomitant suffering that goes along with that. Um, I felt that this was not a good doctrine. I think that Jonathan Edwards was right when he he said that um, uh, for a finite sin, you get a finite penalty. For a sin against an infinite creature, you get an infinite penalty. I think he's right, and I think the biblical data, it's not just a systematic statement, but the, the biblical data goes through that. And so some people um, had written um, a, a book uh, um, uh, some books, but I have one particular person in mind who um, tried to explain away the passages in Revelation. Revelation 14, 11, Revelation 20, verses 10 to 15. Right. These are the crucial passages for the eternality of punishment. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, um, um, so I, I thought that needed to be defended <clears throat> exegetically. Trying to think for the pastor here in 2007, you also published uh, another 1,200-page commentary that you and Don Carson edited on the New Testament use of the old, mm -hmm. and that you wrote your section on Colossians. Mm -hmm. You also did Revelation. Together with, with some, a former colleague yeah. at Gordon-Conwell. And uh, you started this, uh, I guess, in Boston, probably, and then brought it with you to Chicago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it was a project yeah. that was about ten years in the making. And were you pleased with how it came out? I was, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I love it as a pastor. i got to tell you, this is, this is one of the things I reach for most often. Oh. Uh, I use this, like you say, with the Scripture Index. And then when I'm looking at a passage just to try to find readings in the service that would be appropriate yeah. from both Testaments, it is so useful. Yeah. Well, it was, uh, I think, the contributors. There were about 15 contributors, I think, including Don Carson um, um, and, and me. And uh, they were, in a certain sense, selfless because, like, take Ricky Watts. I think he wrote 200 pages on the Old yeah. Testament. He could have published that as a book. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's there. Yeah. And now, now his name is, is inside. Excellent. But it's excellent, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the other contributions, uh, many are similar, and I, so it was uh, amazing that people be willing to do such research mm -hmm. for a kind of encyclopedic yeah, book. Yeah. 
In the next year, 2008, IVP came out with your biblical theology of idolatry. We become yeah. what we worship. You mentioned it a few minutes ago. Yeah. Why, why didn't you do this in IVP's new, tu- new studies in biblical theology series like you did with this one, the, the temple and the church mission? <clears throat> oh, I shouldn't ask that question. No, no, that's fine. I mean, it was just a natural, it seems like one of these. Yeah, I agree. This just was too long a line. Um, you know, I, I, I guess one way to say it. Is We're so far into this interview, only six people are listening anyway. Is that um, I, I just felt that intervarsity in America uh, markets their books just a little. You get a little more exposure rather yeah. than in England. I think that's that's it. I love intervarsity. And is this a British series? The New Studies in Biblical Theology. It's centered in England. Okay. Yeah. And it used to be the Erdman's distributed. They stopped it. Now IVP distributes it. Okay. And IVP in America just does not. Uh, advertise and expose the works as they would their own. Mm-hmm. So it was somewhat practical. You say in this, you are, we are imaging creatures, reflecting the Creator, or mm-hmm. something in creation. So people, mm-hmm. are you saying people become idols? Um, they become like that to which they. Uh, uh, and this is themselves. all coming out of Isaiah six. That's what motivated me. I, I, I did a. Um, um, a sermon for Gordon Conwell's chapel at one point in the oh, around 1986, and, and preached Isaiah six. I may have heard you preach it. And um, and then I, I I got so interested in it. I had Doug Stewart, an Old Testament scholar, there read it, and he said, "Beale, if you were a student, I'd give you an A on that paper." I said, "Oh my gosh, you know, an A from Doug Stewart." And so I submitted it to Vedas Testamentum, and they published it, and and it just, I just kind of you know it was on the back boiler, and I thought you know I think what's going on in Isaiah. Six, uh, the idea where it says you have eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear, and um, uh, to, to summarize that, the reason they're described that way, I think, is you can just show it from Isaiah, but elsewhere, is that they're idols. Mm-hmm. Had eyes but couldn't see, mm-hmm. and ears but couldn't hear. Often, whether they're animals or they're, they're human statues, and so it's a way of saying you like idols, Israel. You haven't repented over these generations. Okay. You're going to become even more like the idols. Mm. That's why I, that's Isaiah's. It, it, it's 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 quite a it's a judgmental missions mm-hmm. commission. Mm-hmm. Some people take it as positively, you know, who will go for us? Mm-hmm. This is this is a hardening commission. It's not it's not exactly, you know, one one of the uh, uh, happy happy ones. So then I just thought, you know, there's a lot more in the Old Testament, uh, and I think I want to write a book on it. In 2008, you published a book with Crossway, which was a little different than the books that you normally publish. Yeah, I don't usually do that. The Erosion of Inerrancy in Evangelicalism, Responding to New Challenges in biblical the- to Biblical theolo- uh, Authority. And this was <clears throat> basically caused by the writings of Peter Enns, at the time Old Testament prof here at Westminster, Yes. especially his 2005 book, Inspiration and Incarnation, Evangelicals and the Problem of the Old Testament, published right. by what I call the New Baker. Um, was this in part... <clears throat> because of your work with the Evangelical Theological Society when you served as president in 2004 and you were kind of... No, it really wasn't. I always was very concerned about the doctrine uh, of, of the full inspiration of Scripture, that Scripture speaks unswervingly, uh, uh, truthfully to whatever it addresses. But actually, um, at Wheaton, um, uh, a professor at Wheaton, actually from another department, Though we had standing in our department, wanted to give a book review of this book, and Inspiration and Incarnation. Yes, and um, I sensed that the review was going to be generally positive, and so a number of us decided to read this book very carefully because it was going to be a big discussion. 
after the person presented the review. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I made copious notes. And uh, I still remember uh, when the person finished the review. I didn't know the person very well. I'd only you would know, he, he usually was not in our uh, department, but uh, he he looked at me to start discussion. He said, "Greg Beal, what do you think about Enz's view of the old and the new?" So, you know. I started uh, uh, to say and um, to speak, and, and so it went on. Um, I had made so many notes for that book review. I thought You're just in the margins of Peter's book. No, 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 no. Well, that, and then typing them out, and I mean, already, you know, I just this was an important. I, I looked at this as an important episode in the department, hmm. Hmm. and uh, so. I basically expanded that, and I wrote a response to Ed's book, a review article in Jets, to which he responded. Mm-hmm. They'd come up with a new policy that you couldn't have a rejoinder, so we had to leave it at that. But I did uh, have a further rejoinder in uh, Southern Seminary's uh, journal. Also, I published, uh, and that was all on just his Old Testament section. On the Old and the New section, I published uh, a review article in Thamelios. Uh, in which, again, Peter Enns had an opportunity to to respond, and then I was able to write a rejoinder there. I don't, I've never met Peter Enns, uh, but it, it really arose from my own situation, where the book was being used in, uh, 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 for discussion. So, so, for example, he wouldn't believe that it's viable to believe in an historical atom. Um, at the time, I'm told that he said he did, but now it's become clear. Well, he's published as he's the evolution seen, of Adam. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't. Uh, I think it's pretty clear now he does not. But I think oh, a thumbnail sketch way uh, of summarizing his view in the Old Testament is we've all seen perhaps these docudramas, say, of the Civil War. And, uh, well, we know the Civil War happened, so that's historical, and, and, and we know there were people on both sides, and that's historical. But, you know, the love stories, a lot of the relationships, they're made up. Well, I think that he has that kind of a view, that the core of the patriarchal narratives, for example, and of the Exodus, uh, is historical, but a lot around it has been um, artistically uh, brush-stroked. How do you think... Uh how did Karl Barth understand that aside Jesus makes in John 10.35, the scriptures cannot be broken? How did Barth understand that? Do you know? No. Would, would he have affirmed uh, in any sense the inerrancy of scripture? Oh, I can answer that. Um, in fact, I have uh, in the back of that book, uh, I have quotations from Barth. It's very clear that Barth did not hold to the inerrancy of scripture. Uh, he and I think classically the classic evangelical understanding is correct. That you think the saw, Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy is a good statement? It's a very good statement. Now Bart would say that Scripture is a pipe through which the Word of God goes, but the Scripture is not the Word of God. So if you look at the, the appendix in the back, it's amazing the kinds of statements he'll make. In fact, he says to the bold postulate that all of Scripture is inerrant. I will make even the bolder postulate that every piece of Scripture is errant, and yet that God sovereignly speaks through it. Of course, he's being theoretical yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, for the sake of argument at that point. But no, no, he would say the apostles were men who were humans. They made errors. And, you know, he says the uh, Old Testament writers and the New participated in, in saga and legend. Of course, he... 
he has some different definitions of uh, of that, but uh, a lot of it overlaps with the kind of thing Enns was doing. A year and a half ago, you leave Wheaton to move back to the East Coast to Westminster. Why make that move? Was it hard to leave a university and come to a seminary? Well, I had a wonderful research chair position, uh, about a half-time load, and uh, uh, you know, 20 hours of teaching assistant work uh, for me every week. So it was a wonderful position. I was set to stay there. But um, Westminster had... Uh, they had approached me uh, early on saying, would you be interested in coming? But it was in the midst of the Inns affair. And I said, you know, get 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 your household settled mm-hmm. one way or another. And then, you know, if you still want to chat, let's do. And so Inns left along with two New Testament people who were uh, allies with Inns. And they left for various reasons. And so they said, hey, would you want to come and kind of, you know, help rebuild the Biblical Studies Department, um, um, especially New Testament, two of the three people had left. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, when I went to Gordon-Conwell, uh, you may remember this, uh, it was kind of the New Testament Department was the fuller of the East Coast. Yeah. Yeah. And one by one, they left, and young Turks like me and David Gordon and, and um, Scott Hafeman, we kind of helped to feebly, perhaps, but we tried to, to rebuild that department. Then when Wheaton... Uh, contacted me. So this is what you do? Uh, it, you know, these redemptive historical, they're kind of <laughs> miniature redemptive historical events, you know, on a small scale. Yeah. And, and and so I loved Westminster. I loved the heritage of Westminster. And so I um, I said, yeah, you know, I'm, I could be interested. And, you know, I've always taught at, at, at solid evangelical institutions, uh, including Grove City, but they've been been diverse. Mm-hmm. Calvinist, Armenian, charismatic, non-charismatic. I mean, we can go on and on and on. I'm sorry, which charismatic institution did you teach at? No. I, oh, okay, all right. But, 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 but there are those elements. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah okay, yeah. charismatic Certainly and non-charismatic. Yeah. That's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. And, of course, the president of Gordon-Conwell was, was Pentecostal, yeah. Gordon Fee was Pentecostal, yeah. et cetera. But, um, so, um, uh, I said, you know... It would be nice to be an institution that specifically, publicly, including in its advertisements, uh, advertises Calvinism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it says specifically represents, you know, what, what I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, um, that, that, that was an attraction as well. Here you are. And uh, your uh, latest work to come out is not of a small-scale uh, brushstroke kind of work. It's uh, a New Testament biblical theology, the unfolding of the Old Testament in the New. Why didn't you call it eschatology and the new creation? I could have, um, but really the book is more uh, than that in the sense that it's a I think it's a full-orbed New Testament biblical theology. Thomas Schreiner says certainly is magnum opus I mean, is this the kind of a culmination of what you've done? It actually is. uh, And unfortunately, you know, I had to stop. For example, I don't have a chapter on Romans 11. Can you imagine? Hmm. There's got to be something on Romans 11, 25 to 26, so I have a five-sentence footnote. Hmm. But it would have been 50 pages. Hmm. And I I mean, so what I've learned is there's no way anybody can write an exhaustive New Testament theology or New Testament biblical theology. Now why I call it biblical, you might want to ask in a minute, but 
that's up to you. Why do you call it uh, biblical <laughs> A New Testament biblical theology. That's right. As Be- just opposed to a New Testament theology. That's right. Because the New Testament theologies typically stay within the bounds of the New Testament canon. Though, of course, you know, they're, they're referring sometimes to the Old Testament. Okay? So it's not like they're not referring to the Old Testament. But, but they're mainly focusing on, on the New as the database. Whereas this is considering the New Testament in the light of the Bible. So it is a New Testament biblical theology. So my first substantial chapter after the introduction is a chapter uh, uh, tracing what I see to be uh, the major storyline of the Old Testament. And then the uh, next chapter after that, the major one is tracing what I call the eschatological, how that storyline is eschatological in the Old Testament. And then I go to Judaism and show how that continues. So I'm trying to trace things here. uh, uh, Every concept in the New Testament is rooted in the Old. Every concept is rooted in the Old, and hence, every concept in the New Testament is a facet of an already yet and, and not yet eschatology. Now, I further refine what eschatology is. It's the movement toward a new creational kingdom for God's glory. So would there be a lot of continuity between this and those first books we saw in the bookstore, Voss's Pauline Eschatology and Paul and Paul Building on their shoulders, yes. Voss's Biblical Theology? Voss really, uh, um, in his Pauline Eschatology, he has uh, one or two chapters on an already not yet eschatology, but most of it is futuristic eschatology. And then his, his, uh, his Biblical Theology is primarily Old Testament. So I'm writing what I think Voss would have done if he had written only a New Testament Biblical Theology. Now, he's probably rolling over his grave right now, uh, so um, I should say what I, I feebly tried to do what Voss would have done, but building on the shoulders of Ritter Voss and, and to some degree Richard Gaffin as well. So see if this is fair. The Old Testament storyline appears best to be summarized as the historical story of God who progressively reestablishes his new creational kingdom out of chaos over a sinful people by his word and spirit through promise, covenant, and redemption, resulting in worldwide commission to the faithful to extend that new creation rule and resulting in judgment for the unfaithful, defeat and exile, all of which issues into his glory. That's the Old Testament storyline. The New Testament storyline can be summarized as Jesus' life of covenantal obedience, trials, judgmental death for sinners, and especially resurrection by the Spirit has launched the fulfillment of the eschatological already and not yet promised new creation reign, bestowed by grace through faith and resulting in worldwide commission to the faithful to extend this new creation rule and resulting in judgment for the unfaithful unto God's glory. You have to remember I studied in Germany for one year. So, you know, I, I doubt Don Carson would uh, write such a long sentence summarizing the Bible, but uh, I have. And um, so, yeah, and I... Uh, uh, so, so, Greg, so, so the, for so, the pastor... How is this going to be useful? Is it, again, the Scripture Index? Is that the key? Well, um, Scripture Index is very important. It's a very uh, a thorough index. And secondly, there is a topical index. And thirdly, you can tell just by reading uh, uh, the, the major chapters. For example, I have a chapter on justification. If you're preaching anywhere on justification, mm-hmm. I think that chapter would be helpful. I have a chapter on reconciliation. If, you're, if you want to find out what are the already and not yet elements to justification, to reconciliation, uh, to sanctification, uh, to Christology, uh, image of God, temple, um, etc. Et I think it would be helpful. So if John Calvin sits down and reads this book, anything he's surprised by? Um, 
Well, you know, I was thinking about that the other day with regard to the Westminster Confession, and I think what I was thinking about the Confession is similar to John Calvin. The Reformers were amazing, what they recovered, the old Ad Fontes cry, mm-hmm. back to the sources. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I think the dimension that... Uh, uh, they, they uh, did not emphasize the way they could have, could have, was the already and not yet eschatology. That mm. eschatology is dawning. And this is why, this is, this is a contribution of Voss mm-hmm. and Ritterboss and, and others. Uh, so, okay, walking beyond Westminster for a century, if Jonathan Edwards, Progress of Redemption, if yeah. Jonathan Edwards sits down mm-hmm. and reads this. Same thing, I think. Okay. Mm-hmm. B.B. Warfield. If B.B. Warfield sits down and reads this. I think pretty much the same thing. I don't think you, it's really with Voss that you begin to, and, and, and then in this more well-known, um, Kuhlmann, uh, uh, he's a little more well-known in outside evangelical yeah. circles than Voss, but it's, it's really the, the early 1900s when this comes to begin to be uh, um, blooming, if you will. So, Greg, what's still to come? Yeah. I don't let, let me just yeah, yeah. say one more thing in that regard. Uh, not understanding these notions in the New Testament, these doctrines, as already and not yet eschatology, uh, doesn't mean you're going to have some sort of uh, pathetic understanding and that the Reformers had some kind of deficient understanding or that Jonathan Edwards does. I just think that this lens of the already movement toward the already and not yet new creational kingdom for God's glory uh, enhances and enriches these things we've always known from a reformational heritage. It makes them pop out. Yeah, it doesn't uh, change them. It just makes them pop out. Yeah. So what's still to come? Well, uh, right now I'm uh, reading the page proofs for a book called uh, Handbook on the uh, New Testament's Use of the Old Testament, which is the methodology behind the commentary. Okay. And a uh, methodology I learned under S. Lewis Johnson, though I've, you know, kind of uh, uh, added to it over the years. But the, the, the core of it is, is, is from him. I'm dedicating the book to him. Mm. And so it's the book. When I first contacted Don Carson to see if he'd be interested in uh, being co-editor, I said, this is the methodology I want to use. And um, I think he liked it. And uh, so we went with it and asked the contributors as much as possible to use it. As some of the chapters don't use it as much as others. Ironically, mine don't, uh, <laughs> because we're dealing with illusions, and there's so many. And, mm-hmm. and so... They, it, and who's publishing this? Uh, this is Baker Bookhouse. And when well. does it come out? Uh, it'll come out the end of August. Oh, great, so this I, year. Great. Yeah, 2012. I'll be able to use it for my course next fall on the use of the old and the new. Right. And uh, so, uh, yeah, after that, I'm doing a commentary on... Uh, Colossians and Philemon and the Baker Exegetical Commentary. So series. you are doing one after all. So I, I am. As I said, I've, I've just almost finished verses 1 through 2. Right now I'm kind of finishing my uh, German commentaries on those verses. But. Ah, wonderful. Greg, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Well, thank you for the doctoral exam. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, brother. Thank you, friends, for listening to this Nine Marks audio message. We encourage you to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more audio messages and other free resources, we invite you to visit us online at www.ninemarks.org or call us toll-free at 1-888-543-1030. Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches.